1: The reforming of the church by Jesus himself. That's next on this edition of Abounding Grace. The Church, like anything in a fallen world, ebbs and flows. We have our high points and our low points, and it would appear that Jesus appears on the scene at a low point of the Church. Welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're looking at Matthew chapter 12 as well as Luke chapter 6 today, message simply entitled, Jesus Sovereignly Reforms His Church. It's an encouraging look at Christ and His influence on His church, whether good or bad. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner now with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
2: I want us to turn to Isaiah 31. Because if we are to understand the appointment of Christ's choice or Christ's choice of the apostles, we must understand it in light of the fact that it is the fulfillment of prophecy. The 31st chapter of Jeremiah spells out the blessings that the Messiah would bring when he entered into history centuries after the words in Jeremiah were written. In fact, this whole chapter is messianic prophecy. And we will read several verses, beginning with verse 1. Jeremiah 31, 1. At the same time, saith the Lord, and that phrase, at the same time, is the time of the reign of the Messiah. Keep that in your mind. Will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people? Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness. Have I drawn thee. Now here's the prophecy. Again, speaking to the church, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O Virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy timbrels, and thou shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt let thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon the Mount of Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Now, Israel in Jeremiah's day was in a sad state of affairs. It was apostate, it was actually in ruins, it was on the verge of disaster with the onslaught of foreign enemies. The nation that was once known for its very fine vineyards is now economically bankrupt and its vineyards are literally in shambles. A nation that was once known for joy and gladness is now a nation where joy is simply lost. There is massive unemployment. People are afraid to leave their homes, to go to the temple to worship Godless. Something happened to them on the way. But God says to them, there's coming a day when I'm going to rebuild you all over again and I'm going to save you from your apostasy because I have loved you with an everlasting love. And once again, you will take up your timbrels and learn dances of merrymakers. Now, Beloved, just a side note, that's very good for us Presbyterians to keep in mind. The fact that a little foot-stomping music is not an evil thing. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. And not only that, but people will cry out, don't be afraid. Let's go to the Mount of Zion and let's worship the Lord. And then verse 7. For thus saith the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish or proclaim ye, praise ye and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. And then the Lord describes what he is going to do and how as a shepherd he is going to bring his people from afar. And so he says in verse 10 of Jeremiah 31. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel were gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore, They shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd and their souls shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow and I will satiate the soul of the priest, with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. What a wonderful existence, a wonderful society these verses describe once God goes to rebuild the virgin of Israel, the church that has been devastated by apostasy and judgment. Now, one of the reasons that we know he is talking about the church under the Lord Jesus Christ is because Jeremiah 31 goes on to verse 31. And in verse 31 and following, you have the great affirmation of the new covenant of which the Lord Jesus Christ was to be mediator. And in Hebrews 8... It specifically identified the New Covenant as the administration of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church as the recipient. And it says in Jeremiah verse 31, chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their god and they shall be my people and they shall teach no one more they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me for the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more Now the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to fulfill all these things, beloved. Once he came and the new covenant was put into effect, Jesus began the rebuilding of his church. He began the reconstruction of it with his life, death, and resurrection. And now sitting at God's right hand, he continues the advance of his church and continues to reform it and renew it in the earth. And one day, At the very end of time, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come to perfect His church and bring this revival and reformation to total perfection. And in Jesus' appointment of the 12 apostles, after spending the night praying on the mountain, we see Him, the fulfillment, in Him, the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. So we can pray for and expect. Restoration after judgment. This is the theme of the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah. When God's people wander away from him, God chastens them and he judges them, not to annihilate them, but to drive them to their knees in repentance, at which point they are then ready to receive God's blessings to be renewed, reformed, and restored. So you and I, who have a longing to see God's church revived and reformed by His Word and by His Spirit. Those of us who want to see the church leave its apostasy and its compromise for purity of the faith and purity of worship and purity of service, have a good, solid basis for this longing and confidence that it will be fulfilled. In fact, it's already begun, beloved. The revival is here. It's not something you have to wonder. Well, when is this revival going to start, Gary? The Bible talks about the revival of the church, the renewal of the church, the reformation of the church, starting in the 16th century. No, beloved. It started when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth. That was the beginning of Jesus rebuilding the church until someday it becomes a great and glorious institution and will receive the praise of all the nations on earth. In fact, Isaiah constantly emphasizes this point. Let me show you two of Isaiah's prophecies. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Now, don't worry, I'm going to bring all this together when we go back to Luke 6. But we're going to begin with Isaiah 2, verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days. And remember, if you will, please, last days has reference to everything from the first to the second advent or everything from the birth of Christ to his second coming. So it says, again, it shall come to pass in the last days. That the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills... All the nations shall flow unto it, and many people shall go and say, Come see, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into Pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation; neither shall they learn war any more. This is in time, beloved. This is not talking about a heavenly uh, uh, era. This is talking about right here on earth. Now, here you have a prophecy in word and figures that people in Isaiah's day understood. He uses the phrase, the mountain of the Lord, the house of God. And he is talking about Mount Zion in Jerusalem, that hill in Jerusalem where the temple was built. And that temple was the symbol of the worship of God and the reconciliation of God with his people through the blood atonement of Christ. And he says, there's coming a day when the mountain of the Lord, the temple of God, the house of God, the church will be exalted above all other mountains and all nations will flood into the church. And as the church is rebuilt and exalted and purified and becomes more and more conspicuous and glorious and influential in the earth, you will see the disappearance of war. There will be a making of weapons of war into instruments of peace and labor. Now turn to Isaiah 25, verse 6. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all the people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the leaves well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. Here is another prophecy of that day when the mountain of the Lord will be purified. It will be filled with Christ's spirit, renewed by the Lord Jesus Christ, rebuilt by him, protected by him, advanced and developed and brought to maturity by him. In, the mountain of, in, in that mountain, God has a great banquet feast of salvation that he offers to the world. All comers may, may come to the church, to the mountain of the Lord and be blessed and enjoy table fellowship with God. And the veil that kept so many people away from seeing the truth will be taken away for those who submit to God's word. So you see, there's a whole host of prophecies in the old testament about the lord jesus christ coming to rebuild his church and to make her pure to save her from apostasy and compromise and judgment and to exalt her and make her powerful and mighty and glorious and beautiful in the earth now you ask gary how did you get from luke 6 to jeremiah 31 and isaiah 2 and isaiah 25 Well, actually, hopefully you'll see it was quite easy. Go back to Luke 6 and I'll show you. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray. Do you think it was just coincidental that in his choice of the apostles, it all centers in Luke and Mark around a mountain? The idea of the mountain is a major figure in the Old Testament, as we just saw. And remember, the New Testament must always be interpreted in light of the Old Testament. But, lest you think this is me reading something into the text that's not there, there is a mountain motif in the life of Christ according to the Synoptic Gospels. It is a great study to get your concordance and look up the word mountain as it occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the life of Christ. And you will be astounded at the times that Christ goes unto a mountain to do something. For instance, the transfiguration was on a mountain. The ascension of Christ took place on a mountain. And the choice of the twelve apostles was on a mountain. Could it be the reason Luke made such an emphasis on a mountain was to cause us to do what we have just done and remind ourselves of the tremendous prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah? Prophecies which enrich, interpret, and define for us the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's another reason why we went back to Jeremiah 31 and Isaiah, and that is because Jesus chose. Not nine apostles, not 11, not 4, not 13, not 106. He chose 12 apostles. Do you think that that was a coincidence? That there were 12 apostles as there was 12 patriarchs? Do you think it was a coincidence that there were 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament church? A church that was eventually eaten up with apostasy and judgment. And then one of the first things Jesus does in his ministry is choose 12 new patriarchs. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at that number 12 in the New Testament. And you're going to see some delicious and profound And soul-nurturing ideas and lessons just through the study of the number 12 and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So you see, it is a natural thing to look at this text and say what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing here is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is literally saying, I have come to earth to reform my church to save her from a coming apostasy, and whenever she wanders off track, to chasten her, to judge her, and to make her even more exalted than she was before. Now, you know, it's important to understand the difference in history before and after Christ. I mean, we talk about 2010 A.D., and we talk about 300 B.C. as if it's just a convenient way for us to talk about history. But history has two different natures. Before Christ and after Christ's coming. Before Christ, the history of mankind was going downhill. It was getting worse and worse. Until and the, the Lord Jesus Christ came to rescue history. And with the birth, life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ you have a total change in history because now the history of the world, the history of the human race is now on a uphill is no longer on a downhill slide. He saved it from that downhill slide and now it is on an upward slope until it reaches perfection in himself at the end of time. Now Uh, The slope is not smooth. It certainly has ripples in it. There are ups and there are downs, but it is a gradual upward incline. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to do. He saved his church in the first century. He filled her with his spirit. He sent forth his people to the four corners of the earth. And by the end of the first century, the estimates are that there were well over a million people who were Christians in the Roman Empire. And now the church continues to... To grow. She has had her ups and downs, but someday she will be a glorious thing. She will be a mighty mountain, and all the nations of the world will come and will desire to hear what the Christian church has to say. So, what do we long for as true Christians? We say this, Lord, may 2011 be the year in which we see more conspicuously than we have thus far the work of your spirit in continuing to reform your church and your people. Over the past 150 years, we have seen in this country a steady declension. There have been a few ups, but basically a steady declension in the church of the United States. She is nowhere near what she once was. And whether you are a Baptist or a Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Methodist, churches in America have wandered from their biblical basis, and now God's curse rests upon the churches of this nation. There have been times that God has brought little fires of revival here and there, but may 2011... Be a year in which we begin to see some of these fires that have been set break out in mighty forest fires and burn to the purification and reformation of the church and the transformation of this nation. And may this great revival of the church that began 2,000 years ago with the birth of Christ start with us in our generation May we see in 2011 those fires, those flickers of love we have for Christ and of faith to Him and obedience to Him and our commitment to Him. May we see those break out in great flames. And may the Lord Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, revive us and renew us and restore us to what we ought to be. We can pray confidently that those prayers will be answered. Because the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to rebuild and to restore and renew and reform his church. So that's one of the reasons why this passage is an appropriate passage for us to consider. Right after an election. Especially in the Soviet socialist state of California. And just before we enter a new year. Because it speaks... Of the revival of the church, something America needs more than anything else, beloved. But there is a second reason why this is appropriate for the day, and that is because it defines for us the nature and the purpose of our lives in this world as Christ's disciples. It defines the sovereign, how the sovereign Christ makes disciples out of us, and it defines the nature of the mission that God has given us in the world. One thing that we should be impressed with every time we turn to the book of Luke and consider a new paragraph is how Luke always focuses on Christ.
1: Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word.